0: The Black Doctors podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors podcast. This week, I'm so happy to be talking with Dr. Adam Johnson. He is an MD, PhD He has specialized in pediatric otolaryngology. He's currently practicing in Arkansas. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Well, thank you
1: so much for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: What were some of the first steps you took to starting down this pathway to become a physician? I found out that if you actually
1: open the books and read them, it's very
0: helpful. (laughs) Um, Funny how that works.
1: (laughs) Decided to do that once I actually got to college and um did biochemistry for my degree in college and just loved it honestly uh, i was a very persistent person I was actually told in high school that i shouldn't do biochemistry as a major because it would be too hard for me um and just kind of give you an idea where where i'm coming from as i went to a very mostly white high school all my teachers were um, white i don't think I, I had one black teacher i think in, Yeah, now they think of it in my entire life, honestly. Wow. (laughs) And she was uh, um, my history teacher in middle school, Um, Miss Gator. um, She's no longer with us, uh, but uh, she was an amazing teacher. Um, But yeah, so my my counselor um, was just like, you should choose something easier. Um, I'm a pretty stubborn person. And so I I was just like, yeah, whatever, lady. Uh, I'm going to do this anyway. (laughs) Um, And, you know, barely got out of high school and then went to college. And that first semester just aced everything. I think I got like a four nine, sorry, a three nine or something like that. And um, decided to uh, go into the honors college, got in the honors college, and then just kind of really just kind of got with the right people, you know, and surrounded myself with the right people, kept my grades up. And really, that was my focus. Interestingly, I had a lot of fun also in college. <laughs> I partied <probably laughs> like crazy. I, I, I really did. But you know, school was like my number one focus, but that did not mean I didn't have a good time. And so, uh, you know, after doing well in college, I thought to myself, I was like, you know, I should really kind of keep this science thing going. Mm -hmm. I worked in a lab, like uh, during my summers, um, extracting semi-volatiles from soil samples as a whole environmental thing. And that was really boring, but uh, it did give me an idea of kind of like, oh yeah, I really like, you know, laboratory science. And so I was just like, I'm just going to be a scientist. I'm going to talk to my rats all day, and it's going to be great.
0: And and what year what year of college was this for you?
1: So this was my decision. Really, was kind of probably about my sophomore year, and I had decided that that's what I was going to do. And I was just like, I need to find a way to be a scientist and that be my career. And I just thought I thought it was going to be the greatest thing ever. And I found, you know, those little papers that they hang on the walls inside of like the college buildings and they have the little tags that you can rip off a right. of different programs. I ran past one of those, honestly, in my uh, chemistry building. And I just said, oh, look at that. You can get a degree in biochemistry. And I ripped that little tag off <laughs> and I called it.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: So, so after ripping that tag off and calling, they were just like, yeah, I just have to fill out an application, blah, blah, blah. We can send you one. And sure enough, they sent me an application, and I just filled the thing out for Texas A&M, and it was actually the biochemistry department. So I actually applied to the wrong place, which was really interesting, because I thought I was applying to the biochemistry department, but I sent it to the College of Medicine. But they just so happened to have a neurobiology degree, which actually after I applied, Sounded more interesting to me. So I ended up doing that instead. (laughs) Okay. So got into that and I moved out to from Virginia to Texas. And uh, um, I will say I truly loved my PhD. One, again, I kind of kept the partying going, which was great. Uh, But uh, I enjoyed being able to come up with something and actually act on it and do something that was novel. And I thought that was really cool. And I really did think that I was going to be a scientist. And one of the things that kind of basically set me on a different path is my my PI, my primary investigator. I was doing a bunch of uh, animal surgeries uh, in order to look at the neurobiology of uh, animals, looking at neuroinflammation. And we were doing some hormonal stuff, some estrogen implants and things like that to, to look at neuroinflammation and how that's subdued. And I would sew these little rats up after we were done. We'd take out the rovers and we would do these different implants and all these different things and then study their um, brain pathology. And when I would sew them up and put them back in their cages and they would hang out for a while, my PI noticed, she goes, you're very meticulous And you do a really good job of making these rats look very nice after you're done. (laughs) And she looks at me and she's like, have you ever thought about medicine? I was just like, I mean, no, not really. I was like, my mom has mentioned it multiple times, but – you know I, I never really thought anything of it she was just like oh she's like I think you'd make a great doctor this and that and the other and then she <laughs> I, you know with my grades and things like that it just never crossed my mind as something I, I could or wanted to do really and then my PI mentioned it to me after sewing up these animals and looking at like how pretty she, she's like they just look really good like your, your suturing is great even like when you put the staples in she's like they're all evenly spaced and they all look so nice wow. <laughs> she's like I and so but after that suggestion, I really kind of started taking it a little more seriously. And I was just like, well, maybe I should look into this. I remember looking into it um, and trying to switch possibly into an MD PhD program. And I, I met with the uh, MD PhD head at the time, and uh, he was just like, absolutely not. I don't think the guy even looked at my scores, <laughs> oh, I don't think geez. he looked at anything. He, I literally walked in this room. This meeting was less than two minutes. I sat down and I was just like, you know, I was wondering about transitioning into an MD-PhD program and this. And he just was like, no. I was like, oh, all right. Door door closed. <laughs> so so I, I quickly got up and got out of that office. I, <laughs> I figured that was never going to happen that way. Um, but regardless, you know, again, me being extremely persistent. I think that's probably the story of my life is just I'm really persistent with everything. But yeah, so I, I decided I was like, "Well, I'll just apply to medical school. I'll finish the PhD and just apply to medical school." And so, it, probably about three years in, started planning for taking the MCAT and doing all that sort of thing. And I took the MCAT, and of course, being I don't know three and a half, maybe four years out of college, <laughs> I did horrible, yeah. like horrendous. <laughs> Like The lowest score that you could get and still apply at the time, I think, was a 21. Um, I know it's different now. I think the numbering's different, and I'm pretty sure I got a 21. Yikes. And so, <laughs> so I have tried to apply in Virginia because I was like, oh, well, that's where I'm from. I'll apply in Virginia. And the schools were like, nope, you're out of state. You haven't paid taxes here in so long, so you're really not a part of the state anymore. And I'm like, oh, okay. So then I was like, well, I live in Texas now. I was like, I'll apply there. And so I started to apply there, and they're like, hey – you're out of state. Oh, <laughs> you no. are a student here, so you don't count. <laughs> I was like, "Wait, what a minute!" <laughs> so, um, I did find a place that says, "Hey, um, we take seven percent about." Um, from out of state, and that's actually in our stuff. Like, we have to do that. And it was Texas Tech, and I applied there into a bunch of the other schools in Texas, and I got an early interview and got an early acceptance to Texas Tech. And it was wow. the only interview I got, and I'm pretty sure it was because that MCAT score was so low. But the interview process was, was awesome, and I just loved it. And so, super excited, finished my PhD, and that was probably at about four and a half, five years that that took me to do, and then went to medical school. And that's where I met um, my first ENT mentor, uh, Dr. Cordero. Um, He's still there at Texas Tech. And this guy, man, he he came to our, you know, when you do an anatomy and you do that first two months and you get to the head and neck and everyone's just like, oh my God, here we go. Head and neck anatomy. This is ridiculous. Yeah. And he comes in as the ENT guy and he literally talks to us about ear. And he starts talking about hearing bones and all these other things. And then he just stops and he maybe gives like this 15 to 20 minute lecture. And then he just stops and just starts talking to us about his day. Um, and I've always heard, you know, ENT is pretty good lifestyle. And then he just starts telling me, he's like, yeah, oh, I'm done at like two or three. Um, I do this, this, and this. And he kind of shows us all the different things. he So big wax that he does. Then he's showing this little tiny ear surgery. And I literally, I'm like, that sounds cool. And he's like, if anybody wants to come down to the OR and watch, I'm happy to have you. Okay. And I'm just like, yeah, I got to do that sometime. Right. And so I go home and I'm, I'm married at this time and I'm hanging out with my wife and I'm just like, you know, this guy has this great lifestyle and he does these really cool surgeries. And she's just like, so when are you going to, I was like, ah, eh, I'll go sometime. <laughs> she's like, if you don't get off this couch and go down to that operating room, Jeez. I was like, Oh, oh okay. Okay. I'll do, I'll do it. And totally went down there and I watched him take a basal cell off this lady's face, like remove like half of her face. Like I was just like, Oh my goodness, what is happening? And I said, no. So now what do you do after you've taken this thing off? Because, well, we're going to, He's was like, it's too much to reconstruct. He's like, so we're going to let her heal. He's like, and we're going to actually place some magnets and send it to the prostatis. And I was like, well, what are they going to do? He's like, they're going to mirror the other side of her face. And then with magnets, they're going to make her a little prosthetic that she can snap in. Whoa. He's like, and she can put on makeup and you'll never be able to tell the difference. And I was like, wait, what? I was just like, okay, how do I be you? I want to be, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And he said, it's really hard you've got to study like crazy. He's like, you have to be the best of the best. It's one of the most competitive things. You know, it's one of those top three or four every single year. And he's like, you just have to do it. And so I spent the next, you know, three and a half, four years, um, basically just stuck in a coffee shop, studying like crazy, ignoring my wife, even though <laughs> she, she didn't really let that happen, but trying, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but just studying like crazy. And then, um, yeah. And he just helped me along the way. I wasn't the model student. I didn't because this is back when you would go to classes. Right. Um, I didn't go to every class because I would sneak down to the OR and help him close cases and do all sorts of things um, that I probably had no business doing. But uh, back in the day, you could kind of get away with that. But we uh, he just helped me so much when it came time for residency and I had done well on boards, I'd done well with grades. Um, it, you know, it really all, also comes down to it's not what you know, but who, you know. Right. Um, and he made a ton of phone calls for me. Uh, he called different programs, uh, uh, each one that I wanted to get into and basically vouched for me and said, Hey, I've got this guy here. You guys know me. I wouldn't call you unless I felt he was going to do well. Um, and one of the places my wife wanted me to go was Oklahoma, uh, because it was very close to Dallas, the Dallas Fort Worth area, which is where she's from. And so, uh, he called there and basically made a plea for me to the, the chairman there at the time, he was actually in the middle of stepping down, but he still had a lot of pull at the time. Uh, Jesus Medina and he's, he's the guy, He's kind of the God of head and neck. If you, if you want to be a head and neck surgeon you've read his book which is like this massive giant bible of head and neck it's uh medina and Lorraine, something something of the head and neck and <laughs> it's got everything in it and so i remember my interview day when i got one um, and i sit down with him and i'm just sitting there like super super nervous and he just kind of looks at me and he's like let's go see a patient and doesn't that's all he says to me So we just get up out of his office and we go where some of his residents have been operating. He goes into the operating room. He's like, you stand out here for a second. He goes in the operating room and then comes back out. He obviously was checking on things. And then he's like, all right, let's go talk to this family. And we still haven't really interviewed or anything. (laughs) I'm I'm super
0: confused as to what's (laughs) happening.
1: And so I'm just sitting there, you know, like the scared student that I am and he starts talking to his family and the family is just starts like crying and they're just like, thank you so much. And they're hugging him and, all, and I'm sitting there. I'm just like, Oh my God, this is like really intense. And like, here I am this intruder. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, we jump back in his car and just scoop back over to the office and we sit down and he looks at me and goes, I just want you to know. He's like, I think you have a very good chance of coming here. I've talked to Dr. Cordero and that was our interview. And I was like, Oh my God, what just <laughs> happened? <laughs> I was like, is this good or is this bad? I'm not really sure. <laughs> so, so yeah, so after that interview, obviously things went well. I went on a bunch more and, um, and got accepted there. Um, and my residency was just a blast. I had so much fun. You know, it, I... The, the intern year was pretty tough and that's because you just, you know, you don't know what you're doing. Um, you don't know who you are, where you are or what's really happening. And then, um, you get into your element and you really can kind of hone all your skills and learn everything that you want to learn. But my, my residency was so much fun. Like all my co-residents were amazing. Um, they're all still amazing. We all keep in contact still. Um, and it, it really was just fantastic and then I met some guy, um, uh, <laughs> some guy, but my attending, who was um, <laughs> an amazing cleft surgeon. And I asked him one day, I was just like, how do I become like you? I was like, I want to do what you do. And I want to be as good as you. I was like, I don't I don't want to know this on any other program. I just want to be exactly who you are. So, you know, it's really, again, the whole situation is not always not what you know, but it's uh, who you know kind of thing. Um, and he made phone calls uh, to Arkansas and just kind of said, hey, look, I got this guy who's just really interested, like really wants to come there. Um, and I remember like, getting that interview down and talking to the head and just basically I said, uh, like, you have any questions? Like where do I sign and how do you convince my wife that I'm going to come to Little Rock, Arkansas? Right. Oh, geez. <laughs> and so, yeah. So he actually even went out and talked to my wife. Like cause my wife had come down with me and he went and talked to her. Just the next thing I knew, um, here we are. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then after fellowship, I actually just stayed, uh, stayed here. Um, we, we signed a contract here and, um, now I've been in practice for about, uh, almost five years now. So, but it's been great. Like this place is amazing. But you know, I mean, there was all these struggles uh, that we kind of came through, um, uh, especially being a black man in medicine. I know you know how that feels. Right. right. Uh, one of the things that I really noticed that it actually took me a while. Didn't I? Honestly, didn't recognize it until I was almost done with residency. I did not recognize I was the only black male in my class at Texas Tech.
0: Huh?
1: Had no idea. Just didn't even think about it. After that first month or so, I just had my head down and I really didn't think about or do anything except for study. And that was and I think I was so blinded by like, I have this path that I want to get on and I want to do that I never my head never been popped up for that.
0: Wow. And it just wasn't even
1: on my radar. And then, you know, I'm sitting there in residency and we were talking one time, and I was just like, Am I the first Black ENT resident <laughs> to come through here? <laughs> and when I start looking through these pictures on the wall, and I don't see another single one, and I'm just like, "Oh my goodness, I guess so." <laughs> and I was just like, "I wonder how many there are." And that data was not easy to find back then. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it, it was absolutely just kind of mind blowing. Um, and it, I, I'm sure you've seen some of my posts that uh, data from I think it was like 2016 or 17. Where otolaryngology, I mean, it was 0.6% back then. There's actually new data. They're up to 1%, which is pretty good. <laughs> Progress. I always tell people, you, you know, if you, if you line up uh, 100 otolaryngologists in a room, you're, you're likely not to find the black one, which is really wild to me. Totally blows my mind. And, Jeez. you know, I, I, it always makes me wonder what the reason is for that. And I don't I don't know what that is. Uh, you know, I mean, there's always going to be some selection bias and things like that. But sometimes I just think we don't even know that it exists or that we can do it.
0: Right. Yeah. And without I, exposure. I, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I I do that now. In fact, um, uh, you know, I mentor lots of students, um, lots of students, lots of residents. And I am constantly trying to, you know, Help people, no matter no matter race, gender, whatever. I, I don't care about that, but I do try to make sure that our black students do know that this exists because I don't I don't think it's something that's brought to their attention very well. Yeah. Um. You know, if if you've never seen it, it's hard to know that it's there. So yeah,
0: absolutely. So, Dr. Dr. Johnson, we got to touch on this because yeah. you mentioned offline that you didn't have the straightest route through high school. You definitely had a good time in college and your PhD. Yeah. And I know a lot of people have this yeah. image that you have to be straight laced. You you can't deviate. You got to have to be straight and narrow. So talk about how you balanced the lifestyle, how you changed from high school to college, and how you balanced having a life with your studies.
1: So high school to college was a maturity thing. Um, in high school. All I wanted to think about was just kind of being cool, you know, and that was it. I mean, that was my friends, um, we thought we were gangster. We, we were not, but we thought we were because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was the cool thing to do. And I came to this realization um, and it was when I got into college with all the doubt. That was something that kind of actually made my head spin a little bit. And I was just like, why do people think I can't do this? I think that was kind of the biggest uh, motivator for being like, wait, no, I can do this. And there was a there was a point in my life it was just like, I just need to open the book and read it. And once I started doing that and started studying, I was just like, oh, yeah, there it is. I, I can do this. And then I found out I was pretty good at it. And so therefore, it's kind of this. Positive, you know, feed-forward loops like, "Hey, get this going," and so that was really helpful um, in college. But what I will say is, there was always, you know, you work hard, play hard. There was always this need for a release, and I probably released a little more than than I should have. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I made sure to have a good time, and it it the balance is difficult, especially at that age um, where you're not quite making decisions properly for most people i would say there are some people who really have it together i did not but it was i got a lot of positive feedback when i did well and that's probably what helped me so much hmm. and so it, that was from my parents you know that was from peers um from teachers that sort of thing and it was just different feedback than when in high school Within, When when high school when i got good grades it was like matt great um, when I went to college, people were like, "Johnson, you're smart," you know, blah blah blah. And that's kind of I was like, "Oh well, yeah, I'll, I'll be the smart guy. That's cool. I don't mind doing that." But I definitely needed to have that release when I went to graduate school. I actually struggled in the beginning a little bit because I it was literally the first time I'd really moved away. You know, I'd lived 30 minutes from my parents uh, in college, and then when I went to graduate school, uh, they were in Virginia and I was in Texas, and so that was a really big difference. Um, There was no like just drive home in the evening or drive home over the weekend or something like that. It was I was out there. And so that was a little little wild. Uh, In the beginning, I struggled with coming up with my own ideas, struggled with coming up with novel things. And I tended to like to party more than I did to like to work. Um, And then I kind of came to this realization that this is my life and this is like what I'm going to do. And so at some point I kind of have to cut it off and like really, really focus. Yeah, And that, that's, a, that's a hard thing to kind of learn. And I had a lot of lab students that would come through in my later years of my PhD, and I would see them in the same state that I was in. And I'd have to have a lot of conversations like, I understand what you're going through, but this stuff we're doing is actually really important, and we need to focus when we're doing it. We can't show up late. We can't do, you know, otherwise that ruins things. And then if you ruin an experiment, You know, I've done a lot of things like animal sacrifices, collecting cells, doing all. That's a lot of time and energy, and then also, you know, some of these animals gave their lives so that way I could discover something. And it's not okay to mess around with that. And so that was that was a big thing coming to that realization. Yeah.
0: Full circle. Um.
1: That. Yeah. That being said, it was like when it was time to party, and I went all out. Man, I had a good time. (laughs) So. The very, the very last thing that really kind of hit me into that maturity section, then going into medical school was honestly, I, I, you know, that's the one thing that everyone talks about is like, you don't really use your PhD in neuroscience and EMT. And it's like, no, do you feel like it was worth it? I was, if nothing else, it was worth it to meet my wife Okay, because she's the one who's like, all right party and slow it down like way <laughs> down and get it together <laughs> so she was very helpful in that regard which is really funny because she partied just as hard as I did before we met too so I can't she can't really say that much
0: <laughs> I, lo- I love it man I, I when uh when we first got on the phone you know I really wasn't anticipating this interview going this direction
1: <laughs> man i'm telling you like uh, my my friends now um my actually co-fellow um when uh um he's out at vanderbilt now he i tell him stories of all these things that i've done he's just like there's no way people have no idea they really think i'm like this straight laced you know i did this and i did this because you know you're an md phd that right, sounds really right. prestigious Man, I was wild, just absolutely wild. I had a great time.
0: <laughs> oh man, yeah, I love it, and that's this is what people need to to hear and what people need to know that you can fit it all in and and still have a a life.
1: Yeah, my right. my my parents used my dad was just like, I know they say you can't burn the candle from both ends. He's like, you're trying to burn it from
0: three. You need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, so so Dr. Dotson, uh, as a pediatric otolaryngologist. You practice in an academic mm-hmm. model. You're an assistant professor. What is a typical day and week like for you?
1: Yeah, so I do um, standard. I do two days of clinic and two days of OR with one admin day. I usually eat up that admin day by doing a bunch of OR cases that I've found somewhere, um, <laughs> or I add on an extra clinic. <laughs> um, that being said, uh, Admin Day is really supposed to be used for research, and I use my nights and weekends for research. <laughs> so, <laughs> pretty Burn, busy, Burning the pretty candle crazy. From,
0: from three ends still. Yeah,
1: I think that's just the, uh, the my lifestyle, and I, I don't think I operate any other way, I guess. But, uh, you know, I like to be in the OR more so than I like to be in clinic naturally. that's uh, You'll hear that from every ENT you'll ever meet. And uh, I do a lot of teaching. I have residents, uh, fellows, um, and then we get a lot of students. So lots of mentoring, lots of teaching, that sort of thing.
0: Cool. And then uh, what kind of cases are you doing? So my practice consists
1: of uh, vascular anomalies, uh, cleft lip and palate, and general ENT probably do more cleft than most anything. Um, I'm also the director of our velopharyngeal insufficiency clinic, and so there's a lot of VPI out there in the world. And um, what, what is that, that exactly? So it, basically a speech issue that uh, pertains mostly to kids with cleft but can be idiopathic as well as 22-q deletion. It's basically where these kids that have either a short palate or some anatomic issue where air is escaping through their nose when it's supposed to come through their mouth. So the hard consonant sounds like T, P, and T. The air is supposed to shoot out of your mouth, but instead for them, it comes out of their nose because their palate doesn't reach the back of their throat to close it off. Hmm. And so my job is either to lengthen the palate, build a speed bump back there, or actually just block off that area leaving them holes to breathe through, of course, um, in order to get them to make these sounds correctly. I don't know if you've ever tried to do this is not block off the back of your nose and try to talk. It's very, very hard to understand someone with that. So I do a lot of that um, sort of surgery. It's a very, it's nice because it's a surgical and also um, therapy driven practice.
0: So and I know in uh, the pediatric A&T world and oral surgery, there's a lot of opportunities for missions trips because of the cleft lip, cleft palate syndromes that are kind of international.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I work with a group called Global Smile based out of Boston. And I was uh, the director of their research for about two years, as well as one of their surgical volunteers. I've been doing it for about five years. We've gone every year except for last year. Just because of you know COVID stuff, uh, that I, I, actually I guess it was this year. But just because of COVID stuff, we haven't been able to go. But we provide free cleft lip and palate care um, to basically children around the world. Uh, to go to approximately seven different countries uh, throughout the year. I just do the one trip because it is a long trip, and um, you know my job here, as well as my family here, they don't they don't particularly enjoy it when I when I leave, but it's. But yeah, I do one trip a year uh, to Ecuador okay. and I usually do that in March. And it's a fantastic trip. And our, our goal, honestly, is to provide the exact same care that you would get here in the U.S. in these countries that struggle to afford it um, or don't have the people that can do it. We do do a lot of education while we're down there because you know we try to use the diagonal model for um, mission work. So, you know, there's the vertical, the horizontal, and then there's the diagonal. You know, the vertical is just basically you drop in and then you get out of there Mm. and you don't teach, you don't do anything and you just kind of walk away from it. Whereas the horizontal model is you go and then you stay for a really long extended period of time and you're teaching and you're doing all these things, but you're there for, you know, months, years, that sort of thing. And then there's the horizontal, the horizontal um, where I'm sorry, the diagonal model. Um, where you kind of you come in, you do some teaching, you get people up to speed on techniques and things like that, and then you kind of leave and let them take over. And then it, the idea is that you come back every now and then. We've had issues with uh, you know trying to perfect that model, and so right now we really go every year, and it usually tends to be it's older kids that just they can't afford to pay for it, and so therefore not having the finances there makes it very difficult for them to, to even entertain surgery. We try not to like leech from the community, especially if patients they can afford to um, have insurance or even uh, pay for surgery outright. We try not to take those kids from the community because they need those cases and things like that. Um, but the ones that just can't afford it at all or don't have insurance, then we gladly take care of those because it's all free from us.
0: Yeah, and how long do you stay on these trips and how big is your footprint?
1: So we got about 40 people that come with us each time we go. Um we're there for 10 days. We actually so it's it's interesting because um it, you know we're we're in and out of the operating room, we're teaching that sort of thing, giving little lectures um the whole time we're there. And it it really is just an amazing experience. It it's something that I look forward to every year. It kind of keeps me going. Uh, the difference in operating here and operating there really is just like the amount of appreciation, like those patients show you and it's because, it, you know, they're desperate and it, it you know, here in the U S yes, your parent, your patients definitely appreciate you, but it's a different thing there. Cause here it's a little bit expected. It's like, Hey, you know, we have this cleft lip palate. We know it's going to get fixed. Right. They don't think they're getting fixed ever. Wow. And so that's that it's just a different, like, you saved their kid's life almost. And I'm just like, "Eh," yeah, I just kind of fixed their lip and and, it looks pretty good. (laughs) But (laughs) now they're thinking, my child can get married, my child can get a job, my child can function in society. And here in the US, kind of no matter what's going on with you, we have that idea of acceptance, right? And so you might have some prejudgment and things like that, but you can still function in life here. Even if you have um, some sort of craniofacial anomaly or something like that, you can still kind of go on with your life. right? But there it's, you're almost cast out. And so it's by doing these surgeries um, there, it allows them to basically rejoin society. And there have been some grown men that haven't had surgery that we've operated on and it's all of a sudden their lives are completely different and the wildest thing is usually the people that we operate on they we always see them back even if we don't need to follow up with them they know we're in town so they come and see us <laughs> oh man
0: that's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah
1: it's it's amazing yeah it's absolutely amazing but yeah that's 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 a really fantastic group uh, global smile foundation they're just fantastic
0: Yeah. And then then I saw on your Instagram, you practice in Arkansas and they were flying you around with a private plane and stuff.
1: Yeah. So that's that's um, we actually do outreach clinics. Um, Basically, we have, you know, we're we're kind of the only game in town as far as Arkansas goes. And we're smack dab in the middle of the state, which sounds great. But if you go out to the northwest corner or the northeast corner, that's a three hour drive. And so to shorten that drive for our patients, um, they actually fly us out there to, to help us reach them. One of my patients, just the mom was just like, we just cannot make another drive down there. I was just like, well, just don't. I was like, I'll come up there and operate. That's fine. And I went up there uh, to Northwest Arkansas. We have a little children's uh, satellite hospital. I did the surgery up there. And then one of the general surgeons needed to do something also. And they're just like, that works for us. <laughs> and so I just flew up there for the day. I actually sat at the, um, I was in uh Springdale and they have a little Onyx coffee shop and so I hung out there on um, the rest of the day and then got on the plane to the back
0: wow <laughs> yeah it was really nice it's definitely a, a unique uh practice model
1: yeah and it again did that on my admin day so. oh my god <laughs>
0: Which which brings to a nice thing I want to ask you about is this uh, love of coffee. What is this Doctor Cappuccino about?
1: Oh goodness! So I have an obsession. Like so, you know, like there are a lot of people that play golf and a lot of people drive fancy cars and they love all that sort of thing. Um, I just really love coffee, uh, <laughs> so I'll tell you how this started. It actually started in medical school. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, I, like I said, I you know I post up in coffee shops and just study all the time, just twenty four seven. That's all I was doing, and I would look around. And I would get jealous because there'd be people sitting in these coffee shops and they're just laughing and having fun and sipping on coffee. And like I was just pounding caffeine trying to get through my next lecture. <laughs> and I was like, one day I'm going to come to a coffee shop and not bring a book or anything. I'm going to just lounge and laugh and hang out. Okay. And that, that day took a long time. <laughs> and then finally I was just like, I just, and I, something about it. I just kind of, of course, you know, caffeine's an addiction, but it's a good addiction to me, at the way I see
0: it. There's <laughs> worse. There's worse
1: addictions. <laughs> so um, I really just started to enjoy coffee, and I would talk to the baristas, and we would sit there and chat about different kinds of coffee and espresso and this and that and the other. And then I was just like, well, I'm spending like $5 a cup. On a caramel macchiato or something, I was just like, I got to be able to make this at home. I can't, I can't keep doing this. <laughs> and so, through the years, I've kind of gradually built up to making like really craft coffee espresso, like in a like a barista would. Wait, did, did you in make, a coffee shop?
0: Are these coffees yours on your? Uh, so there's there's an Instagram page. Yeah, that's called uh, Doctor. Cappuccino. Yeah that's, in, that's, yeah,
1: that's that's in my house.
0: <laughs> what? yeah Yeah, so we
1: were sitting around one day and my wife's just uh oh i did a um i did a competition um it was a so they they do these latte art pouring competitions right and so i show up to this competition and i'm in my scrubs because like I ran out of the OR after I was done and went over for this competition that I had signed up for. And I had really poured like a few things. And someone goes, hey, look, it's Dr. Cappuccino. And I was like, that's my new name. (laughs) So I made an Instagram and just uh, I did horrible at that competition. Like they just destroyed me. I was like, oh, I won't do that again. <laughs> but but after that, it was just like it just continued. And I don't know. I just I love I love the nuances of making espresso. And then I also just I love pouring art. Like it's so much fun. It is difficult and it. Took me years to get to the point where I could make something consistently. It's still not great. It's always a work in progress. But again, that's kind of my hobby. If anybody comes to my house, the first thing out of my mouth is like, hey, you want a coffee? <laughs> 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 but yeah, I, I've spent way too much money and way too much time on coffee. And I thought I was going to do great by, like, oh, I'll buy my own machine and then I won't pay $5 a cup for this. And I, I get it, definitely hasn't paid itself off by all the stuff that I bought.
0: <laughs> Jeez. Is that, is this still but the first, y- the first uh, real machine you got or have you upgraded?
1: Um, no. So I've upgraded. So I started with just kind of a Nespresso machine, which is not really true espresso, but it, it's uh, pretty decent. I,
0: I have a Nespresso. That's yeah. That's okay. <laughs>
1: And then I went to this Breville barista. That was actually my graduation gift from my department uh, because they knew I was like a coffee freak. And so they got me that. And that actually worked really well. And then when I started actually making real money, I bought the uh, espresso machine I have now, which I won't talk about how much I spent on that because people will just be like, you're absurd. (laughs) (laughs) But this one, it actually, it's pretty neat. It comes with a little tablet and you can monitor everything. So I can monitor flow rate, temperature, puck pressure, um, how many bars I'm putting in, um, and I can adjust all of these these elements as I go. Um, and so I, I, I am truly in search of the perfect espresso if I can.
0: <laughs> all right, well, best of luck in that quest. If you guys want to see these pictures, uh, you need to check out, Dr. Cappuccino on Instagram. It's pretty impressive. And also, so, uh, yeah. uh, be sure to follow Dr. Johnson. He's on Instagram at Dr. Dr. A Johnson, And uh, he's got some pretty cool pictures from his uh, day-to-day life. Awesome. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. As we close, what advice do you have for high school students or college students that you know, may be interested in becoming physicians or careers in healthcare but think they've partied too hard or maybe burned that chance already
1: oh yeah i always tell everybody you know it's never too late to turn it around you know i that's kind of where i was when i was coming out of high school i was just like well i was like i don't know what i'm going to do with my life Uh, i don't know if i'll be able to figure this out and it's one of these things once you decide it just bury your head down in it and just go for it and there's still time to have fun uh you can always make time for that but uh But definitely, if you if you if you want something, just you know, bare your head down and get it. That's all you can really do. Just work hard for it. You know, there'll be obstacles. There'll be um, all sorts of things And you know coming from me. There'll be racial uh, issues. Uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about gender biases and things like that in medicine as well. All that stuff's going to be up against you, kind of no matter where you're coming from. But um, it's still doable. You just got to surround yourself with the right people and find good mentors good mentors good mentors good mentors That that is probably one of the most important things that i did is i had good mentors
0: well dr johnson thank you so much for joining us again i mentioned the instagram Where else can people go to find out more about you?
1: Um, I'm pretty easy to Google. Um, (laughs) I know my name is kind of common, but if you put in Arkansas and Google me, I'm pretty easy to find. (laughs) uh, There's all websites, videos, things like that, um, that, that we have that come out of Arkansas Children's. But yeah, that's the easiest way to do it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yeah.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: The Black Doctors Podcast is a non-profit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of The Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.